Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. On the second Wednesday of each month, and often in between, we discuss the latest bioscience publications. And as a reminder, if you'd like to read more, point your browser to academic.oup.com forward slash bioscience. Today's episode is the next in our In Their Own Words oral history series, in which we talk with scientists who've made great contributions to their fields. This week's guest is Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson, Frederick P. Rose Director of the Hayden Planetarium at the Rose Center for Earth and Space in New York City, and host of Cosmos Possible Worlds. Let's go right to the discussion. Neil, thank you very much for joining me today. I'm happy to be with you. So let's start off. When did you first know that you wanted to be a scientist? My earliest memory related to that is when I was nine. Mm-hmm. And a first family visit to the Hayden Planetarium, my local planetarium here in New York City. And um, the reason why I say it was the first thoughts related to it is at age nine, I'm not thinking career. Mm-hmm. You just, as a kid, you just do what feels good. You do what you enjoy. And that first visit to the planetarium opened up a vista that I didn't know existed, especially as a native New Yorker. We don't have relationships with the night sky. Yeah. You look up, there's a building there. And when I grew up, there was much more light pollution and air pollution. So yeah, you knew about the sun and the moon and maybe a couple of stars. That, that was it. So it required this institution of a planetarium to take me to that frontier. And it would require another couple of years before that interest would codify into a lifelong ambition to be not just a scientist, but an astrophysicist in particular. And going back to that, you know, first visit, do you remember what you saw there? I don't remember the show. Back then, the space shows were seasonal Mm -hmm. and they often included a description of the night sky. You would catch that that evening. Um, Now that overhead is no longer possible. (laughs) uh, All shows were live, you know, there was a live presenter. Uh, this sort of thing. That's no longer the case. Um, Shows are highly prepared and they, they run for, for sometimes years, a couple of years. So um, back then it had a different kind of a tone to it. It was, there was a person there speaking to you and the person might respond to what an audience reaction. Um, And uh, so that had a certain, sort of dynamic aspect to it. But uh, it was surely just looking at the night sky. I mean, I'd never seen that many stars. That was enough. Forget Big Bang, quasars, black holes, curved space-time, just the night sky. Because I'd seen the night sky from the Bronx, and it had like a dozen stars in it. So to go in the planetarium and see countless thousands, uh, as I've said before, I thought it was a hoax initially. It was a nice hoax. I said, I'll go along with it because it's kind of fun to look at. But I would only much later into my teens realize that the planetarium sky was capturing the real sky. And to this day, uh, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say, maybe it's not, I shouldn't be embarrassed by this, that when I'm on mountaintops at the finest observing instruments in the world and I look up, and I say to myself, wow, this is so beautiful. It reminds me of the Hayden Planetarium. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of, you know, kind of inversion of glory. Um, but when you're imprinted in that way, it can, it can 
um, it sticks with you for life. Yeah. Do you remember, you know, the, the first time that you were able to, you know, get out and see the real night sky, as it were, you know, either with a... Oh, required trips. We, ha we have ancestry from the Caribbean uh -huh. um, and the British West Indies and Puerto Rico. So it was trips to seasonal, uh, usually uh, winter trips, Christmas trips to these islands. And then now, islands are not, you know, low-lying islands are not necessarily the best for observing a, a beautiful night sky. You really want dry desert climates or very high mountaintops, ideally sort of both. Mm -hmm. But it was still better than in New York. And so you look horizon to horizon and you see stars all across. Uh, an, an interesting thing, there's a little known fact, the closer you are to the equator, the shorter is twilight. Hmm. Or the shorter is the duration of twilight. So because the sun sets at a much more direct, nearly perpendicular angle to the horizon. And so it gets low very quickly after it has set. So you don't have much more than 15, 20 minutes of twilight. And so what happens is it's daylight and then it's dark. Right. Immediately. And it's funny, there's a lot of artwork. I attended a, an, an, an art um, exhibit at the Museum of Modern Art here in New York City. And I forgot the title of it. It was something like uh, Twilight Skies in the Early Impressionistic Period. There's something like that. And I told, I, I was on the tour given by one of the curators, and I told the curator that um, you wouldn't have bodies of art captured in Twilight if all those artists lived in the tropics. Because Twilight's just not a thing. Right. <laughs> Whereas if you go north into, uh, you know, England or into uh, Scandinavia or the Netherlands, um, Northern Europe in particular, you, twilight goes on for an hour and a half, two hours. And if right. you're in Norway, five hours, okay? It's twilight until 11 p.m. in the summertime. Uh, so, so there's more opportunity to embrace what twilight can be to you when you're at northern climes rather than near the equator. That's just a a complete aside to this interview. I thought I'd slip that in in case anybody's interested. No, that's really cool. And I, I'd never thought of it before. Um, I'm wondering, did you have any early heroes in astronomy? Um, no, uh, I don't think about it that way. I, I, mm -hmm. My heroes were, were sort of the heroes who were supposed to be your heroes, like superheroes, right? Sure. And my favorite, you didn't ask this, but since you use the word hero, my favorite superhero was Mighty Mouse, actually. And I liked the fact that he sang opera while he was saving people. There was something, here I come to save. There was something, I don't know, that was, it was weird, but somehow curiously entertaining. And even then I was, I didn't quite understand how something so small as Mighty Mouse could swing much heavier objects around and, you know, dispatch with them. And the masses didn't quite work out in my head, but he, he's a superhero mouse, so we'll give him that. And uh, in my life, as I grew older, I would think of the role of superheroes as protecting those who cannot protect themselves. And I grew up fully card-carrying geek, Back then, I, we were mostly called nerds, fully card-carrying, except 
I was highly athletic and bigger than most people. Okay, in a classroom of 30, I might be, there might be one guy bigger than I am and, and bigger than everybody else. So, so I, if I saw a, another nerd getting pummeled by like the football quarterback or one of the bullies that every school had bullies back then, uh, they've basically been outlawed. I don't think bullies are like, they might still be there, but it's like, if you find one, you report them. Whereas decades ago, the bully was just a standing entity in the school. All right. And you, I don't think anyone even occurred to, it didn't occur to anyone to report them to the principal. They were just the bully. Right. All right. And you had to like navigate the bully. In fact, the movie back to the future, mm -hmm. the entire premise wraps around how do you handle a bully? There is no movie without a bully in, in, in that story. Yeah. Point is, uh, I always imagined that if there was a, you know, a nerd getting pummeled that they send some, bat signal, you know, up into the clouds, maybe the first few digits of pi or something. And then I would see that and I would come to their rescue. And um, so we asked if I had heroes, that was the nature of my heroes. In terms of academic heroes, um, there were people who, who had talent that I greatly respected. People who taught classes at the Hayden Planetarium that I attended going into middle school and early high school. There were educators there, there were scientists. And one educator in particular, he had such a way with words and it was a joy to listen to and he made you smile. Occasionally he would make you laugh. And I said to myself, if I am ever an educator, that's the kind of educator I wanna be. And there were scientists teaching classes and they had such command of, the, of, of, the, of physics and of the universe. And I, and I imagine that that was like be impossible for me to gather that much knowledge, not realizing that I'm 15 and they're 40 or whatever. And so if you, if you devote many more years than I had spe specializing in those kinds of topics, you can be, gather that level of expertise. But it was still very impressive to me. And I said, if I'm, a sci if I'm ever going to be a scientist, I want to have the command of knowledge that they have. So what I did was I assembled my, if you want to call them role models, I assembled them a la carte. Right. A little bit of this, a little bit of that. And my parents um, were, my father was active in the civil rights movement in the 1960s. My mother would later return to school, become a gerontologist. They had very strong commitments to the human condition. And so, and here's their son, the astrophysicist, which is a little weird. But while I was floating in the clouds, I was anchored to social justice, if you want to call it that. So my, I didn't have a single role model. I had this amalgam of people with talent. And I, I also, I liked baseball. I played Little League. Uh, I was on the All-Star team. That was fun. Um, and the, I say that only because I had baseball, baseball players. I said, if I want the talent that that baseball player has. I didn't want to be that baseball player. I don't, cause they, I don't know what the rest of their life is about. So I was very specific. Let, let me, let me to cut this slice and dice and cut and cherry pick, make that what I want for myself. And so that's my long answer to your simple question. Did I have heroes? No, that makes sense. So it's more about assembling the traits rather than, and admiring the traits rather than, you know, building someone up as a uh, superhuman. Yeah, correct. And, on a level that hardly anyone would ever live up to, right? So right. you want to be sort of sensible about that 
dimension of this as well. If they're a fictional character, you know everything you can about them, but real people are usually more nuanced than fictional characters. Within science, um, has mentorship played a role in your career, either uh, you know being the mentor or the mentee? So um, I've had several students um, mm -hmm. throughout, but uh, not at the PhD level, master's level, and others I just sort of gave general academic advice to. Uh, there's a certain um, value to that that I see where there's this wheel that needs to turn. And if you can help turn that, however many degrees in rotation, or add a handle for someone to turn it themselves, ideally even, um, that's good. So you can share some of your life experience with them. The um, people, I think, mischaracterize my relationship with Carl Sagan, saying mm -hmm. he's a mentor. Sure. Um, that's, it mischaracterizes only in the sense that I think I was in his presence maybe only six times in my life and uh, one of those two of those times were particularly influential but it was not because he was come over here Neil let me teach you that that's what you think of when you think of mentor I am watching him mm -hmm. okay and as I said before if I slice and dice and make my role model a la carte I'm looking at what he's doing and how he's doing it and I'm saying if I'm ever in his position of power, influence, fame, whatever, that's a really good way to do that. And so, again, do we call him a mentor? Or I would say you can be a mentor just by example. You know, where's the conversation about that? And nowadays you can know much more about someone with social media, books they write, articles about them, videos they'll present. So you don't even necessarily have to be drinking buddies with someone to learn how you can learn from them. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I, I, I think you're, you're describing a, um, you know, a way of becoming a professional that is much more doable maybe than you know, um, a model in which you, know, you have to know Carl Sagan personally and be able to you know, uh, chat with him or someone like you. Um, it's, it, it's much more feasible. But think about it. That's, that's, a, that's an important point. Think about it. Um, I've posted in the last 10 years maybe 6,000 tweets Mm -hmm. And that's a modest number compared to what some people put out there. Uh, you know, it's, it's five a week, something like that on average, maybe seven, one a day. And I think my character and personality and leanings and, and values are captured in those tweets. I, if, if you read those tweets, I think you'll know who I am. I'm not hiding anything there. I'm not, uh, this is not, this is not, there's not a journalist serving as an interlocutor is that the right word interloc i don't want to use that word anyway forget it um, <laughs> okay a, a journalist serving as a conduit to mm -hmm. the audience where it now has the lens of the journalist or the interpreter you have direct access to people and uh, and yeah you can say well people want to preserve an image or whatever okay that can happen too i guess but I, i'm not that person and mm -hmm. so uh, it's there. So, so you get to know who I am. And if that can en enhance your ability to see, oh, I like this, what he did. I want to do some of that myself. Th then, like you said, the, all the better for it. Because 40 years ago, 50 years ago, you didn't have that access at all. 
it's actually speaking of tweets for a second. You know, uh, you've you've criticized a lot of movies over the years uh, for their portrayals of science. You know, is that just for fun, or or do you have a, a project in mind of, of you know of education? So, just to be clear, um, the movies were never criticized. Oh, okay. I never said whether I liked the movie or don't like the movie. I simply highlighted where they got stuff wrong. Mm-hmm. That got interpreted by many as criticizing the movie. So for example, when the movie Gravity came out, I posted maybe a dozen tweets with the hashtag mysteries of gravity. Okay? Why it's called gravity at all when the whole movie takes place in zero G? That was just my first question. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> so the whole movie, she's in orbit. Okay. Second, how is it that Sandra Bullock's bangs always know which way down is <laughs> when in zero G they should be floating randomly. So these are observations I shared. This got remembered as me being harshly critical of the movie when in fact I greatly enjoyed the movie and they got a whole lot of stuff right. And so I don't, I hardly spend time criticizing movies that make no attempt to get things right. right. Okay. All the, all the bad science that's in Star Wars I don't, you know, please, I'm not, you know, I went there once, I put out a few things like BB-8, a smooth rolling metal sphere would have skidded uncontrollably on the sands on which it was moving. I just put down just a little bit of physics, okay, in case anybody was thinking about it. So uh, I want, yeah, it's putting producers, directors, writers on notice that there's a geek set out here that's look that's looking at what you're doing. And if you can get it right without compromising your storytelling, then why not? Yeah. Better yet, if getting it right enhances your storytelling, then all the more embarrassing for you to have ignored it. In one such example, not that you asked, um, in Star Wars Force Awakens, there's a new and improved Death Star. So this one doesn't just zap one planet, to kill it. It can zap an entire star system's worth of planets all at once. Okay? So that's a badass Death Star. Where does it get the energy? It sucks energy out of an actual star. Okay. Okay? So it parks itself near a star and then sucks the energy into this vessel. And then the star disappears. Okay. Now it can kill like eight planets at once. And I'm thinking, really? Did you really think this through? Okay? You know how much energy is in a star, right? <laughs> yeah. If you actually could let hold aside how they managed to pull it out and stick it in a vessel, hold that aside. If you had that much energy, you could destroy a thousand planets. This would be the most diabolical weapon ever. So by not paying attention to physics, they told a lesser story than they could have. And I'm, and I'm disappointed by that. Yeah, and it sounds like it would be, you know, a, certainly a fair opportunity to say, hey, you know, let's get this right and tell a better story while we're at it. So the highest compliment I ever got was I had Andy Weir, the author of the novel The Martian, from which the hit movie The Martian was derived. Okay, that for me was a significant movie. First, had a marquee director, uh, which was Ridley Scott, had marquee actors up and down the cast. So this is Hollywood saying space and science matter because science was a character in that story. 
right? You cared less about, oh, do they have loved ones at home and they might not say, what? Is he going to live by how much science he knows? Show me the next experiment he's going to do. Yeah. You were like in it every day, trying to see how he's not going to die by how innovative he's going to be by invoking the science and engineering that he knows. Mark Watney, the lead character. Right. Well, the author of that novel imagined I was looking over his shoulder as he was writing. Oh, that's cool. And he said to himself, wait, I better tighten this up because if Neil reads this, I don't want to read a tweet about it the next morning. <laughs> so, so, so I was his little, you know, the devil whispering in his ear, um, trying to keep him honest. Uh, this is on his own initiative. I wasn't calling him, checking on him. So, uh, so now we have uh, an ex-engineer turned novelist write a very tight novel on on a mission to Mars that then is then made by Hollywood and captures so much of the science that he put in it. So there, there is hope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. And it, it clearly, I've only seen the movie, but it definitely benefited from that. Um, moving from fiction, just a moment to, you know, real space travel. Um, oh, wait, you asked if I had an agenda. No, if there's, I, I, I only, t I don't tweet to be anyone's pain in the ass mm -hmm. I, about the movies. I tweet on the, expectation however delusional this is that you might want to know this about the film yeah and there are people saying oh you must be terrible to bring to a movie with you because you probably just complain no no i kick back you'll hear about it later but not during the movie and you know who the worst person is to bring to the movie is the person who read the book first they never liked the movie you know no. this in advance so get them the hell out of the movie theater so that everyone who's just watching the movie can enjoy the movie Agreed. Let's let's keep talking Mars for a second. Um, we go to the uh, American Society for Gravitation and Space Research's annual meeting every year, um, and, and typically report on it. And a lately, uh, there's been a lot of talk about a human mission to Mars. Um, and you know, what do you think of those sorts of kind of you know, grand challenges of of you know um, getting everybody together to do one big thing as a, a kind of motivating factor? Yeah, I have highly unorthodox views on these subjects. So I'll, mm -hmm. I'll share them with you, but I'm warning you they are unorthodox. Fair enough. Okay. You've been warned. Okay. So um, in my read of history, okay, um, yes, it is true that if, if you have one goal that everyone can gather around, the likelihood of that goal succeeding is higher than if that's not the case. However, sure. if you want space to be a frontier that attracts us all, you don't accomplish that by single goals. You accomplish that by establishing access to space, the capacity to get to space so that any number of people can walk into the warehouse. So I need three solid rocket boosters, two, two liquid fuel boosters, and five uh, two-ton pay, uh, payload. Thank you. Now I'm going to do a science mission on the far side of the moon, okay? Oh, now I want the three payload in this with the science package. That, oh, I'm going to visit an asteroid. I'm going to do this, and I'm going to tap it. Oh, I'm going to mine... Uh, craters for helium three on the moon. So what you do is you create access to space. Then you convert a space program into a space industry. 
if all you're going to do is let's go here, because then what happens when you go there? What's next? Oh, I don't know. Let's find, let's see if we can rally around something else. It shouldn't be about rallying. If this is a goal, if space is a goal, it should never really be about rallying for one destination. If all of space is a goal, because then you're just piddling along. Let's go here. Okay, now who's going to vote for where we go to next? This is not exploration. No. When they built the interstate system in the United States, did they say, let's just build it between New York and LA and we're done? No, you send that thing everywhere. I have reasons I want to put a farm over here and I need access to trucks and, and, and railroads, whatever. You know, you build things to provide options for the, so you can tap the full creativity of people who want to participate in that adventure. So my, my answer is no. No, you don't do that. Second, uh, sending people to Mars, that's simply not going to happen. Not that I don't want it to happen. Not that I didn't wish it would happen. But my read of history tells me there's only one way that's going to happen. Either it's a vanity project that the three rich guys band together. You get Gates and, and, and Bezos and who did I leave out? Uh, uh, Elon Musk. And they throw in, you know, they each throw in $100 billion, okay, or $200 billion. And for, for a trillion dollars, you, you put humans on Mars. That would be a stunt, basically, because there's no business case to do that, right? That's one way it can happen. Another way it can happen is China leaks a report that they want to put military bases on Mars. We'll be on Mars in nine months, Okay two months to design, fund, and build a spacecraft, and seven months to get there. That's what, well, yes, that, that's how we're going to Mars. But if you wanna say, we're going to Mars because we're explorers, it's in our DNA, we're Americans, we're this, it's in, in human, hu no, no. That's not why we went to the moon. It's not why we're ever gonna go to Mars. That's my read of history, and that's the reality check on what everybody else is saying. Is it pretty much that it either has to be to serve a commercial interest or a military interest? Yes. Yeah. Yes. One of those two? Precisely. Yeah. In fact, I can make a stronger statement, and that is every expensive thing humans have ever done in the history of civilization. Expensive. So in terms of human capital, financial capital, time, all of these combined, um, has been done in the interest of money mm -hmm. on the return on an investment or war so it's the i don't want to die driver and i don't want to die poor driver let me add one to that if you go back far enough several hundred years you also would do such things in the interest of praising royalty or deity but those are no longer major forces for those kinds of activities today but you go far enough back for kings and gods and this sort of thing, you would do it for them. So those are the three drivers. And for just, I want to do it because it's there. No, because it's fun. No, because I want to do it. No, because it's in my DNA. No, because we're overdue. No, because someone says they want to do it. No. So that's, that's my read of history. And unfortunately, many space enthusiasts haven't read history. And so they think it's just a matter of political will. It was never a matter of political will. 
We remember Kennedy's statement, oh, put a man on the moon, return him safely. Well, we had leaders back then, excuse me, go back to that same speech. Have you read that speech? No, you haven't, okay? It was an address to the joint session of Congress and Yuri Gagarin had just come out of orbit and we didn't have a, a human rated vehicle that didn't explode on the launch pad. And Kennedy says, if the events of recent weeks, he wouldn't even utter the man's name. If the events of recent weeks are any indication of the impact of this adventure on the minds of men everywhere, we need to show the world the path of freedom over the path of tyranny. That's what wrote the checks. Right. Later on, he's in the speech, he says, yeah, let's go to the moon. So do you think we're on the right track then with the commercialization of space and bringing more industry into the, the NASA program? Yeah, it should have happened decades ago. First, second, it already has happened decades ago. Uh, it's the, the, the patina is different and this has been lost in media coverage of this. So um, NASA has always collaborated with what let us call the space industrial complex, okay? Uh, Lockheed, Martin Marinetta, um, Grumman, Aerospace, Boeing, uh, General Dynamics, all these folks make things that go into orbit and beyond. Many of those companies have since consolidated. So you have Lockheed Martin, mm -hmm. you have Northrop Grumman, this sort of thing. But nonetheless, it is a space industrial complex. By the way, they also heavily serve the military, as you might imagine. So this industrial complex made stuff for NASA during the Apollo program. The LEM that landed on the moon was designed and built right over here in Bethpage, Long Island. People today still walk tall, remembering those times. They'd have an aunt or an uncle or a cousin who was an engineer or worked the front office. That, that is a point of pride and culture in that section of Long Island to this day. The reason why it didn't say Grumman on the side of the craft was because tax money paid for it to be designed and built. So it was contracted out in that sense. So once that happens, then the ship that launches, it says United States of America, it's got the American flag, there it is. All that's happened now is you have private, not all, there's a lot that's happened, but what has happened now is that you have private space enterprises that are making their own spaceships, okay? And, you know, NASA doesn't have a ship to get them to the space station. So they say, who's got a, they look over the fence, who's got a ship? Elon Musk has a ship to go to, to, go to the space station. So let's do that. So we put astronauts on Elon Musk's craft. It says SpaceX going up, takes it to the International Space Station, and there you have it. And according to your reading of history, this is the best way to get there. To get where? Uh, to get, you know, out into space. No, I, that's not what I said. Okay. I said for major expensive projects, ah. such as going to Mars. Okay. Uh, going to orbit, it costs money, but it's not, you know, major fraction of your GDP, right? So, so um, there's plenty of commercial things you can do that don't involve sending humans to Mars. I'm not talking about all of space is expensive. I'm talking about humans to Mars is expensive because you have to feed them. And usually they want to come back. That All of that takes money. Okay, you said, well, we are robot launched today. Mm -hmm. at, the, at the time of this recording, uh, we've launched a robot tomorrow, two and a half billion dollars. That's within the noise of funding for space missions, 
right? That's not taking, that's not like building the pyramids. That's not like building the Great Wall of China. That's not like building all the cathedrals of Europe, all right? These are the major activities. That it's not like the Manhattan Project. No, no. You can always send things into space under the budget threshold that where it can happen and you fund it on one cycle and everybody's fine. Mm -hmm. I'm talking humans to Mars. That's a trillion dollar uh, enterprise. So um, the point is you, <clears throat> uh, another thing that the press generally got wrong was the expectation that you don't need NASA because private enterprise will lead us into space. My read of history says that's not gonna happen either. Because if you do something first in space, it's expensive, it's dangerous. If it involves people, people can die. And there's no obvious return on the investment for doing it first. Countries have reasons for doing things first. Some of them are geopolitical, cultural, geopolitical, economic. And a country has a longer baseline of economic return that they invest in than companies do. Companies play to the quarterly report and the annual report. At most, maybe a five-year plan on their R&D. At most. Typically, it's two years, three years. Countries are here forever, as far as they're concerned. So they can plan five, ten years out. They can. Whether they do or not is another question. And so, so when you do this, the, let's, let's see what it's like to visit an asteroid. We've been to asteroids. We've landed on asteroids. The next private company that wants to do that doesn't have to wonder what those risks are. It's all there in the engineering reports. So, so the private relationship to the moving frontier of space is historically a second wave phenomenon, not a first wave, when that first wave is hugely expensive. So that's, that's my only point here. And one of the best examples is Columbus's voyages to the New World. There was some private investment in that, but mainly it was the motivation of the Queen and King of Spain, Isabella and Ferdinand. Will, is there an edge? How far is India? How long will it take? Will he come back? What are the risks? Nobody knew any of that. He comes back. Gives, and he doesn't say to Isabella, oh, uh, uh, here's the slideshow of the, uh, the, the, no, no. It's like, tell me, how do you get there? What's yeah. the cost? Boom. All right. We get a new trade route to India. Fine. You know what happens next? The Dutch East India Trading Company rises up. A commercial adventure. Why didn't they do it first? Because no investor would do it first. Period. Yeah, you're you know you're you're clearly a, a great student of history, and I was um, I was watching Cosmos Possible Worlds, and um, I noted a quote from Baruch Spinoza, or you were uh, characterizing what he said, which was that you know magical thinking posed a danger to future citizens of a rational free society, um, and you know I, I've been struck by the way that and that, that was his, how many centuries ago, right? right. Yeah, come <laughs> on now, right. Does history kind of you know play a role in your thinking? Is it is it cyclical? Is it something that's always present? Because you know I've noticed in the storytelling in the show that it's it's ever present, and you know there's kind of a shifting back and forth across these broad timescales. So I care deeply about history, mm -hmm. and almost as much as Andrean cares deeply about history, and she is uh, she and and Brandon Braga co-wrote the series. And so they're reaching back to his, 
bits of history that are forgotten or never were, were never really told in the first place that can highlight certain cautionary tales that we can carry forward to modern times. So our mutual respect and love of history resonated greatly in the delivery, the concept, uh, the writing and the delivery of these scripts. The, <clears throat> I, I'm not gonna say something so trite as, oh, history repeats itself if you don't, um, no. Yeah, some of that's true, but uh, I think history gives you context. And it's not so much whether history repeats, it's when you live, and I think it's understandable, you wanna believe you're living in special times. Mm -hmm. And you wanna say, oh yeah, it's different this time. Well, it isn't really. You're still human. We still have societies, we still have economies. Um, you know, to look back at the flu pandemic of 1918, I'll say, oh, we'll never have a pandemic again. Oh, what did they know? They didn't, what did they have? They didn't have any idea. They were not gonna have, boom, we're in a pandemic, okay? Uh, so I guess, yeah, history is kind of repeating itself. I was looking at footage of the McCarthy era and I'm thinking, how do you get to this point? We gotta be much more mature than anybody was at that time where you start putting people on lists and now they can't get jobs. There's a, there's a thing. And it's like, I, then I see some of that happening again. Okay, you, 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 you look at Nazi Germany well, here's a downtrodden country after the, after the First World War sanctions were put on them. And now a leader comes up and it says great things about Germany and about their future and about their health and their prosperity. And it identifies an enemy. Yeah, the Jews are the enemy. Yeah, this is an oh my gosh. People say, yeah, you're right. And they, everybody gathers around it. And, and you look back on that and you say, were they idiots? Like what the hell is wrong with these people? What, what can they have, do they have a brain among them? Can they think this through? No, they couldn't think it through because they were caught up in a nationalistic mindset that blinds you to rational thought that, and you end up steeping in it and you don't even realize you're getting steeped in it. You see this happening today. So, so yeah, I think people who study history they just get more angry than other people get when they see it repeating. I, I don't, you know, no, I'm not a professional historian. Call me an amateur historian. I read a lot of books. Uh, one of the books I published uh, last year, year before, is, um, is called Accessory to War, mm -hmm. The Unspoken Alliance Between Astrophysics and the Military. That's a basic, I have a co-author, Avis Lang, uh, and it's, it's a history book, 600 pages. It goes back millennia on the relationship between people who had knowledge and command of the sky and people who had command of terrain, okay? The war fighters, the kingdom builders. The, so there's a fascinating relationship that goes very far back. Yeah, history is important. Otherwise, you'll think everything that happened to you now is fresh and new and nobody's ever had this problem before. And so you're special. How do you, you know, as, as one who's conscious of history and also doing public outreach, you know, um, and, and trying to, you know, help people think about things in a way that is going to be more effective. How do you avoid sounding or being overly negative? You know, how do you, is there a way to be positive about that? Even though it's, you know, you're kind of seeing the frustration of terrible errors repeated again. 
Yeah, it's an excellent question. Um, one of the DNA strands of Cosmos is presenting an unvarnished view of what is wrong and offering pathways, arcs of solutions that are deeply informed by science literacy yeah. in all branches of science. So those who have seen any episode of Cosmos will recognize that there's this tapestry, blended tapestry of uh, chemistry, physics, biology, uh, engineering, astrophysics, um, these branches of science that historically have been sort of stovepiped into our textbooks and in our classes. Nature doesn't care. Nature is nature. All of nature is the blend of these. It's very artificial to split them. Cosmos reattaches them so that you can think holistically, dare I use such a word in this way, think holistically about what role science and science literacy can play in our ability to become better shepherds of our own civilization that we built. Shepherds in a world and in a, in a, in a biosphere that we need in order to be sustained in this civilization. So, so yes, if all you do is say, we're all going to die, well, good, you know, all right, what good is that? Yeah. You can form a cult that way. Most cults that I've read about are founded on the principle that the world is going to end. Yeah. Think about it. They look at their, look at their doctrines. So people say, oh, the world's going to end. I better take action. I'm going to join this cult. Okay. So if all you go, go around and say, if all you do is go around saying the world is going to end, that it's not clear that that's productive. But you do want to say what we are now doing would lead to an end of the world if we continue, but we have these pathways out of it. The unfortunate part is often that person is ignored. I tweeted a couple of weeks ago that uh, every disaster movie begins with important people ignoring scientists. <laughs> Period. Yeah. That's how to, that's... That's how they roll. So the warnings of scientists, uh, if you just take them or leave them, you do so not only at your own peril, but if you're in a position of cultural or political power and influence, you do it at the peril of civilization itself. So, you know, I'm kind of, I'm kind of wondering then um, about how you do outreach and how you get people to heed the words and recommendations of scientists. I'm reminded a little bit of um, a letter in Letters from an Astrophysicist, and in which you suggested that the key was teaching people how to think, not what to think. How can we educate the public, bring them around in ways that um, are going to help us avoid you know, these types of calamities, such as the one we're in the middle of right now? Um, yeah, so thanks for asking. Yeah. Uh, I, I put in a crazy amount of brain energy thinking about how to communicate. Yeah. And that the way that shows up in a compliment is I'll finish some session, you know, is it, is it a seminar? Is it a public talk or whatever? And someone comes up to me and says, Oh, you're such a natural. Okay. Do you have any freaking idea? what is behind every word that came out of my mouth? Clearly not, because they think it's just natural. So I guess rather than be frustrated by them thinking it took no effort, 
I instead take it as a compliment, okay? So um, what I have found is you can't tell people anything. People are too cocky in their beliefs. And, you know, everybody has a megaphone. Everybody has a platform. The barrier to entry is low. It is so low that practically any belief system has adherence on a level where you now think there must be something true about it because why else would there be so many people who think this way? Mm -hmm. I gave as an example, I gave a series of three consecutive tweets. I said, uh, flat earth, Google that. And then you get the pages. Uh, donut earth, you Google that. They're donut earth pages. Um, uh, there's one hollow earth. Three completely different shapes for the earth have entire websites, have followings, have podcasts, have all of this. Okay. So the barrier to entry for any possible idea you have that you think is true is low. So it's a matter not of me telling you that you're wrong, that you're wrong and this is right. That, that, I don't, that might work for some people. In my experience, it hardly works for anyone. What you want to do is empower them to think in ways that force what might be sort of logical conflicts within whatever they were thinking before relative to the new information and insights you are supplying. When they do that, they then take ownership of their new way of thinking. Now they move forward with sort of a, 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 an accurately balanced sense of inquiry. And now when they confront the next thing that someone tells you, they say, wait a minute, that doesn't sound quite, this happened yesterday, but that's not gonna happen tomorrow. Does it fit together this way? Is that reasonable? And so they, they then, then they're in power. And there's no longer reference back to me. I don't want somebody saying, I'll be, I believe this because Tyson said so. No, if that's why you, then I failed as an educator. I want you to say, this is true because here's why. And when you know why, you don't have to reference anybody at all with that insight because you're the one that is in power of your own insights of what is objectively true in this world. So I aim for the base of the fire that's raging within you so that the shape of that fire might come out different the next time it gets stoked. There's a lot of effort. By the way, uh, often it involves referencing things that they already know or care about, like pop culture. My whole podcast, Star Talk, the podcast, is the existence of it has foundations in the interplay of humor and pop culture that gets established. You're smiling. There's something familiar. <clears throat> I know. <clears throat> I now clad that scaffold with the science of the day. Now you walk away with science attached to other things you already care about. And you smiled along the way. For me, that's been quite potent. We're in our 10th year as a, as a Star Talk podcast. Is that the ticket to avoid just preaching to the choir? I mean, I think that there's always a threat with science communication that, you know, you're, you end up speaking to people who are already interested in science and are already believers in science. The very fact that that phrase uses the word preaching mm -hmm. implies that you're telling people what is true. So I don't think I'm preachy. 
maybe I was a little preachy there telling you about the history of funding ex expensive things, but I'm really retelling for you the history of that. I'm not ramming an opinion down your throat. Yeah. I'm telling you, look, look at what has happened before. Unless you want to think that modern times is fundamentally different from every human civilization that has existed for the millennia that has preceded, then pretty much we're going to behave the same way. So I like informing people, then walking away and let them chew on it. Let them, and you don't see me debating. You never see me in a debate. Uh, I don't debate. Debate implies that whoever has the most charisma wins what is true about the world. It's like, no. Whoever's the most articulate must be the one who's telling the truth. No, no, that is not the path to understanding what is objectively true in this world. That's why you've never seen me in a debate. And by the way, I get challenged weekly. I'm a flat earther. I'm challenged to debate you in an open forum and I'll agree to the, uh, no, no, I'm not doing this. That makes sense. Um, what aspect of your work would you most like to see long remembered into the future? Would it be uh, none of know, it? Astrophysics? I don't care. You don't care? No, I, I don't care if I'm when I'm dead. Do you think sure. I care? No, of course not. No, if I'm dead, I'm, I'm, I'm food for worms, more power to them. I'm food for roots of plants. All right. Uh, I spent my whole life dining on flora and fauna for my nourishment. It'll be about time the flora and fauna dine upon me for theirs. And after that, to be remembered, I don't, I don't, um, I, I don't care. Yeah, it's beside the point. I, 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 no, no, let me, let me say that differently. Let, let me say that a little more honestly. Okay. Um, I care that the world is a slightly better place for me having lived in it. Okay. I care that those who consumed my writings, my videos, that they take ownership of a deeper understanding that they have acquired on how this world works then the work I've done in life would have been successful, okay? But I don't care if they remember me going forward. I just care that they move forward with this empowerment and maybe they'll pass it forward. They have an empowerment, they bring that empowerment to others so that we can have a democracy that has foundations on what is objectively true in the world and not on magical wishful thinking and not on political truths that are, <laughs> I define a political truth as that which you repeat often enough that people just start to believe it. Whether or not it has any correspondence to what is objectively true. So no, I don't, I don't need to be remembered. I know what I want on my tombstone. Can I tell you? What's it going to be? Because I want to be buried, like I said, I want to be food for the plants. If you burn, if you cremate me, then all the energy of my body is lost to space, and it doesn't go back to the earth. And I, I'm very much in the cycle of life philosophy there. Um, something you can get from watching The Lion King, the opening song, is it, or the second song? So, <clears throat> the uh, tombstone, a quote from the educator Horace Mann. 
be ashamed to die until you have scored some victory for humanity. That's excellent. And I, I think that may be the note that we wind up leaving this on. Uh, but one more quick question for you. Um, what are you working on right now? Right now, I'm about to start. Uh, I'm finishing a book. Uh, it won't come out until the spring because uh, these have long lead times. It's funny when, when my astrophysics and war book, <clears throat> when my astrophysics and war book came out, it was around the time that Trump announced a space force. And people are like, did you time this for it? It's like, no, this book has been in progress for a decade. All right. But right. Books don't, it's just not how books work. Okay. Uh, so um, there's a book coming out in the spring on very deep questions about life and our place in the universe. Like, where do we come from? Where are we going? Why are we here? What's it all made of? How will it end? Um, uh, you know, this is there a multiverse? Very questions that are deeply philosophical. That's in the spring. Uh, and that's a Star Talk book, by the way. Those are many questions we've dealt with then. Um, I'm also uh, specking and doing the final bits of research on my next book, which I can't tell you about. Um, no, I choose to not tell you, not that I can't, because I'm still baking it and it's still in the oven. And that means it's still half baked. And I don't say anything to anybody about anything unless I've done my homework and all the I's are dotted and T's are crossed. So I might start talking about it in about a year. Well, we will look forward to it nonetheless, even without the details uh, forthcoming, I assume. Um, Neil, thank you very much for joining me today. Excellent. Uh, very delighted to be your guest. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you, and talk to you next time.